The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program this Friday morning. Chinese stocks surge as top U.S. and China trade negotiators resume talks in Beijing after what Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin called a, quote, productive working dinner. The S&P 500 is on track for its best first quarter since 1998, despite growth worries. As billionaire investor Warren Buffett tells CNBC, he sees signs of a slowdown. It looks like it's slowing down. I don't mean it's reversed in course or anything, but it does It does seem from all of the businesses, but especially including railroad statistics because they come so fast. Uh, and they cover such a broad spectrum. Lyft prices its IPO at $72 a share, giving the company a $24 billion valuation as it prepares to hit markets later today in the first ride-hailing public offering. And Theresa May brings half, just half, of her Brexit deal back to Parliament on the day Britain was supposed to be leaving the EU. As Prime Minister attempts uh, another vote, but only on the withdrawal agreement part of the deal. And Huawei's annual profit rises 25% helped by record handset sales as the Chinese telecoms company shakes off what it calls a smear campaign by the US. Uh, news crossing uh, around the success of uh, Tyler's offer for Jamalto shares this morning. So some deal making as we start out the day. 85.5% of Jamalto shares have been tendered for the offer and all conditions now satisfied are waived to make this offer unconditional. The settlement of the tendered shares will take place on the 2nd of April. So fairly quick turnaround. Remaining shares can be tendered during the park closing acceptance. So effectively um, the news crossing around uh, in a joint press release <coughs> by Tyler's and Jamalto that has uh, now hit the tape and um, around the acceptance uh, of this offer for uh, the company. So uh, two big companies about to team up, uh, Tyler's in the defensive space. And uh, we have still seen not much consolidation to start out this year, despite uh, better markets. I think the M&A pace has been quite slow. So this is one deal that's crossing. Question before we get onto the walls, is consolidation a sign of strength or weakness, Karen? And uh, there is no one answer, is no, there? No, there isn't. No, it can be. I People are so flush with... I'm kind of answering it. Sorry, I should have, it's very rhetorical, but I'll come back to you. It's a sign of so much strength that you've got so much firepower that you can go forth and buy, or you feel so weak that you need to combine. But that's enough about Deutsche Bank. What about you thinking on that one? <laughs> well, don't forget when you think about this one, it's sort of a disruptive industry. You think about technology, yes. digitization taking place. So some companies, I think, have been bulking up on the parts that they do not have. So in some ways, it's a little bit defensive, but looking to growth down the track. Yeah, no, I, I think you're spot on. It's not, it's not a, a slam dunk, bad or good part of the industry. It's kind of, as Karen said, there are structural changes and they need to get on the front foot. Right, look, talking to front foot, look at this. If you are long Asian equities, and I say that because too many of our 
contributors on CNBC say it's a good day the market went up. Well, that may be good for people who think the market should always go up. But actually, I think the market should go both ways. That's what makes a market. And the fact of the matter is, if you are long today and if you are not scared off by the extraordinary bull market we've seen in Chinese equities in the first quarter of the year, then yes, it is a good day. Look at this. The CSI 300 is up 3.1%. And as you can see or listen, if you're on the podcast, we're up 2.6% and 2.6% again on the Shenzhen Composite and the Shanghai Composite. This is a very simple story. It is because people believe that we are edging towards a negotiated trade deal between China and the US as well. So markets rallying. And as Jeff mentioned in his headlines, it's not just the Chinese markets. The US markets have gone gangbusters in the first quarter of the year. Let me give you some numbers. This is the best quarter since 2009 uh, for the S&P. Best start to the year since 1998, okay? These markets are very bullish about something. And yet the new pick for the Fed, Stephen Moore, Mr. Trump's pick, thinks the Fed should do what? Given the fact that the markets are going gangbusters and they're really happy about things, yeah? Yeah, you're right. He thinks they should cut rates immediately by 50 basis points. Does that sound right to you? Maybe it is. Maybe he's ahead of the curve. But all I can do is work on the data and the initial jobless claims this week. What do you think they were? This is because we've got to cut rates by 50 uh, basis points, yeah? Jobless claims were 211,000 last week as well. That is below the 217,000 four-week average. It is below the 222,000 we saw in the fourth quarter last year. Are things so bad, unambiguously, that we need to cut rates in the US by 50 basis points? I don't know. But someone clearly does. Even though we've got jobless claims, which a lot of people work on, of 211,000 last week. Anyway, let's have a look at global yields. <laughs> they are currently trading. Look at the gilts. Look at the gilts. Panic over Brexit. Not really. Look at that. You don't get 1%. You get 0.988. All right, rounded. It's 1%. Okay. Look, Japan. Yeah, things are going so well for Mr. Kuroda's plan. Let's double up. In fact, is it a sign of madness? I'm sure someone was tweeting yesterday about uh, Einstein quoting a sign of madness to keep doing the same thing, even though it's not working. Who was that tweeting? Was it Jeff or someone? I don't know. Hey, down 0.092%. I got him smiling. Uh, the German 10-year. Again, this figure this week, enormous figure. $10 trillion globally of sovereign bonds are, yeah, negative yielding. Wow. And the US 10-year down to 2.4 after a heavy uh, 3% yield at the same time last year. At a peak of our uh, exuberance about the markets last year. Do you want to look at the opening calls? And now your podcast, I have to tell you what they are. Oh, God, you can't just look at them, can you? Up 24 for you guys listening on the FTSE. Up 49 for you ladies and gentlemen listening on the Zetradax. 28 points higher on the Cat Caron and 69 points to the good on FTSE MIB. Good morning, Karen. Good morning. Good morning, guests for the first half hour. And good morning, Jeffrey. Very good morning. What were you doing fighting on Twitter last night? Oh, I no, saw no, no. you. I saw, is it at no, Jeff Cutmore? Uh, it is. If oh, I saw you fighting on Twitter. Really? I was going to get involved. I was going to back you up. Well, normally, you're the one that's having the spat on yeah, Twitter. Yeah, but I couldn't quite work out what, what the guy no. was on about. Well, bonkers. Not for the first time. Not for the first time. Isn't it quite good for you sometimes, having a good Twitter row? Not particularly. I think an intelligent conversation on Twitter, if you can find one, is actually more enjoyable. But that is the problem that yes. you, uh, you know, it's an open platform. I, I've done something very rare. And uh, for those people that would normally have caring institutions, this is a form of care <laughs> oh, in the community, oh, oh, oh. isn't That's it? Hard. Let's face it. I, I've done something really rare. I've tweeted five times in the last 48 hours. 
five well times. That's going to put me it's right at the top. Of, the you know we get that quarterly review from the yes. social media people at CNBC. Oh that's going to put me right at the top. You better be careful. Jemana will be coming <laughs> after you. You'll be challenging. You'll be challenging. Like Thirty thousand tweets a month or something. Look, um, not for the amazing. First, not for the first time. You're provocative at the wall as always. <laughs> um, the the problem with interest rates, though, it's a bit like trying to drive a car using the rudder. And there is no rudder in a car, and ultimately, did you it's see very US difficult. mortgage rates? Uh, did I you did. see them last yes, week? One of the biggest drops we've seen for donkeys, and people are saying we've got to cut rates aggressively. They're already going down rates. They're yeah. already going down. Yeah, they're they... priced off the five-year treasuries. They're not priced off the Fed funds rate. Does anyone know that? But the indicative rate is something that the markets take a great deal of notice <laughs> of. I mean, what uh, what I think is fascinating here we are is we're. Uh, pontificating about the Fed cutting rates and getting worried about growth trends and we've got Lyft pricing its IPO to the top of the range. Now when you talk to market participants they they will say to you there is no reason to worry about the markets at the moment because this is not that kind of psychological blow off top that leads to downside for markets but as you look around the markets you can see pockets of exuberance that do worry you. As you point yeah. out, yeah, Lyft you, doesn't you, make you know a profit, Friday. and yet it's We're allowed to do what we like on Friday, by the way. Exuberance, but what about late last year? I mean, December was the very opposite, yeah. wasn't it? You know, that yeah. wall of worry that led to the market absolutely tanking. Kuhn Chow's joined us, yes. EM Macro and FX Strategies at Union Boncaire Privé. It's Friday, so what happens on a Friday is the, 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 the producers who carefully manage every mm. second of the show let us do what we like. It's really, really good. <laughs> so good, good morning to you. We brought you in randomly. Do you want to talk about this? Yeah, actually, exactly what you guys are saying about the pocket of exuberance. I think it's on. I think what's happened is that the big money machine and the Fed on the crank is now turning. And that's why we're getting these kinds of let's reach out for reach out for yield. And um, it's I can not exuberance. It's volatility because if you had such a big downward leg and then you have such a big jump back, mm. that's volatility. It's, it's not exuberance. But what you are seeing as signs of exuberance is you're getting like you're saying lift, which is coming to the market, but also we've got other people in the fixed income space who are coming to the market and saying, well, I can price my bond yields down there. Who would want some? And a good example is Aramco. Aramco's been doing around the last couple of weeks saying, you know, you should treat me like Exxon and, you know, I, price me accordingly. And who's going to fund me for 10, 15 billion dollars? And this is going to be coming up soon. And given what we've seen in the different bond markets, you'll probably see this bid up, what, 4x, 5x, 6x. And we're going to be, whoa, who turned up for 60 billion or 70 billion of Aramco bonds? You're going to get little pockets of this everywhere. And where does this all come from? It comes from the confidence that the Fed's got our back again. Brilliant point. Brilliant point. Well, let's move on and let's just talk about the trade story. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin says US and Chinese trade negotiators had a, quote, productive working dinner in Beijing as high-level trade talks continue today. Mnuchin is in China with US Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer for a series of meetings between the two sides. Meanwhile, White House Economic Advisor Larry Kudlow says the US could lift some sanctions on China as part of a trade deal. Let's um, just bring this back to you for a moment. Um, So... Do we put the trade negotiation and the positivity Mm. about the fact that they're actually talking at this point into the same bucket as the exuberance that you've described around the bond markets and around some pockets of the equity markets? I think it's part of the same thing. The same thing in terms of policymakers are sitting there and they're saying, well, I actually quite like global equity markets going up. 
because this makes me look good and maybe it has an effect on my economy. So when global equity markets are going well, you know, they, they talk tougher when they're starting to get rattled, like December last year, you get the response. You get policymakers say, ah, let's, uh, let's discuss trade. Let's not put up tariffs. Let's actually think about interest rate cuts. So I think it's this whole part of um, pressure policymaker response. It feels like the boy who cried wolf waiting for some sort of outcome on the on trade resolution. We, we've sort of heard it before. We're, we're getting there. We've you know crossed off key parts of the discussion and we're making progress. I feel like the markets have responded one too many times on this type of narrative before. But just say we do actually finally get a deal and all the wolf turns up or whatever it, it is. What do you think the outcome is going to be? Because we've had markets that have come back from some of the higher growth rates. And there's a feeling that the spiral downwards is picking up a little bit of pace. Can trade stop that? Just because of sheer animal spirits, you get business investment coming back, you start to actually get better pace or at least stable growth now. Do you think that's going to happen? I think you get the initial burst of animal spirits that confidence around the world amongst businesses perk up. But let's think about what this trade deal could actually be. It could be the Chinese saying to the US, okay, I'll buy more of your stuff. But the Chinese don't want a quantum, a more overall stuff. So who are they going to say, OK, I'm going to buy more of the US stuff, but less of the European stuff. So what does, that, uh, what does that do to Europe, which is already spluttering? So you're not actually growing the pie, which is a problem. So we get the initial burst of happiness as we get a trade deal. But then afterwards, it's like, hey, uh, hang on, who's going to lose out of this? Yeah, and there's some really important things going on in the FX markets at the moment around emerging, which is your wheelhouse. So let's come back and talk about that, because for those who've been around in the markets for a long time, it feels a little bit like uh, 97, 98. But we'll get your opinion on that in just a moment. Thanks so much. Uh, China's two largest state-owned banks have reported their slowest profit growth in over two years, warning that bad loans could rise and margins could shrink. The Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, the country's top lender, has posted flat profit profits for the first time since 2016. Meanwhile, China Construction Bank reported its first decline in profits since the end of 2015. Also to come, it is the biggest US tech listing in over two years. But should investors hit the brakes? We'll talk lift when we come back. Lyft is set to make its debut on the Nasdaq today after pricing its IPO at $72 per share. Its $24.3 billion valuation makes Lyft the largest company to list since Alibaba back in 2014 and the first of several Silicon Valley unicorns poised to go public this year. Let's get to Elizabeth for more. Elizabeth, we know how this one goes. If Lyft does well, then we might see a string of other unicorns come to market. That's right. This really sets the stage not only for Lyft's rival Uber, which is expected to go public in a few in a bit later this year, but also for a string of tech IPOs of companies that have stayed private for a bit longer than expected with these very large valuations, as you mentioned. Now, Lyft pricing at the higher end of the range last night at $72 a share. That will put its valuation at $24.3 billion. So this is a big IPO. Generally, the sentiment around this IPO has been very positive. The, uh, the IPO was oversubscribed last week in the roadshow. Over $2 billion has now been raised for Lyft. As you mentioned, it will begin trading on fr today, Friday, on the NASDAQ. The ticker will be, fittingly, LYFT Lyft. The question in the first early trade here will be whether investors can forgive some of the 
losses, and they are big losses that Lyft has had over the past uh, years since it was launched, $911 million in losses last year on revenue of $2.2 billion. So Lyft is not a profitable company like many other tech companies that will be IPOing over the next year. And that's the question. When it starts trading, will investors be as forgiving about those financials? So we'll be watching very closely today, trading on the NASDAQ later. Back to you, Karen. Elizabeth, thank you very much. Uh, but uh, certainly a big one, I think, when it comes to ride hailing. We are talking about this yesterday. You've got a whole new category coming to market, which is just extraordinary. Investors are closely watching the disruption in mobility, urban mobility. Service. It's a taxi service with a digital front end, i.e. you can book it on an app. Right. What's, wh where's the innovative... You don't think this has been uh, disruptive for the way the, you well, they, take they, taxis it, in it cities? Is, it is disruptive in a way because I, in a normal taxi I pay 15 quid for the journey. In a Lyft I pay 10. And in an Uber scale. I pay 10. So actually, thank you very much Lyft, thank you Uber, you're subsidising my journey. But making money out of all revenues, at least at this point. Now, I want to get to Elizabeth on that point because when you come to market, I think uh, the investor community is sort of torn between wanting to get access to a company they've not had access to before and also a segment of a market, but also they're conscious of discipline these days on investing. And, and this is one of the uh, companies that has the largest revenues behind only Google and Facebook for a pre-IPO company. Surely that must help in this type of environment. That's what investors have been saying so far in the early lead up to this IPO today. They're willing to forgive those losses because of the strong revenues and because of the massive growth that this company has shown. I mean, it has about 39% of market share in the U.S. now compared to Uber, and that's up from in the low 20s just a couple years ago. So they're saying we're able to see the path forward to profitability that Lyft preaches, even if it's not showing any indication of that right now. Surely it should be the other way around. If you have more revenues, shouldn't you have more profits? Wasn't that what we were taught economic school? <laughs> 101 right there. But, uh, but then Amazon ripped that up and said you can build scale mm -hmm. and then eat, eat profitability, which which has worked for Amazon. But everyone else has got a free lift on the back of it. <laughs> They've been nice. ride sharing on the back of what Amazon's like. See, I did that. I just Who made that never? up. But my point <laughs> is, for this kind of company, why should scale matter as such? I.e., you have a model in a ge geographic jurisdiction, yeah? It is that model. The scale on the technology really won't change the fact that you have an app on your phone, you call your car, you pay a price, you pay the driver, you pay your diesel, your petrol, or your whatever it is as well. Why should scale matter? Why, why is it that the more money this company generates in revenues, the more money it's losing in terms of bottom line, i.e. they lost $688 million in 2017, they lost $911 million in 2018. Why is it that revenue going up equals greater losses? There's just there's so much investment that needs to go into this space because Why? it's completely new. Why? There has What's been the investment? You have a, 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 let's, let me bridge between Jeff saying it's a smart app on top of a taxi and say, let, let's say it is the greatest thing. Why do you need new scale? If A driver, a car, an app. Why, do you, why does scale make that geographic? Let's say you're in Lisbon or you're in London. Right. Let's say London. London's a great metropolitan place. Why does scale help London profitability if the business model is, is intact? I think the argument is that because, this, because that scale did not exist, you have to think about what investments you're going to make. So it's not just, they're not just thinking we need, okay, we have this existing fleet of drivers. They're now saying we're going to do food delivery. We're going to think about scooters. We need to make investments let's beyond. Let's stick one of down the track as well. Let's That's right. stick to knitting. Everybody's doing a bit of this and a bit of that. <laughs> this is a ride share company. That is, their, that is their bread and butter industry, yeah? Why can't they make money out of the existing offering on ride share? 
Does that mean ride share on its own? It's a bit like EasyJet. Do you remember, bless him, Stelios Hagianu. The EasyJet model worked fantastically, but have you seen how many every Easy brands there are there that actually do not make a penny, well, in fact, lose a lot the of money? Just though. I mean, Uber, for instance, it has, as Elizabeth was saying, delivery as well. So it has scale because it has integration across a couple of different areas. It's not just doing taxis. Yeah, how much so, money does Uber make? So, well, so, but let me figure out oh, the point. No, so you have scale across industries. Money. But the other point is that you've got a company that then reaches into other jurisdictions where Lyft is in the United sure. States, so it has scale by jurisdiction. So if sure. you're competing against that, think about the future. If they're bringing sure. more revenues for investment, autonomous cars are coming down the track. So Great. the bigger Great. the uh, revenue, the bigger the cash pile, the more you have yeah. to invest in Fantastic. economies of the future, but which is going to be Are you saying that autonomous. Lyft sharing doesn't make money? Well, of course it doesn't make money. It was just launched what in What do you mean, of course years. it doesn't make money? It was literally just launched. Why, of course? It's, it's IPOing. No, this is great. Amazon. That help me out here, Kun Chow. No, but they had to... Uh, I'm not going to help you out here because the whole, <laughs> the whole idea is to try and get market share, bed yourself into the, the consumer conscience, and then later, then you're... You, you're essential, you're critical, you can't be got rid of, and you start offering other services which have margin. That was the, that was the Amazon right. way. There was Where's an Amazon the, story on the back of this, actually. Where's the note? I mean, look, take any business, right? There are two ways that you mm. remain competitive. You go up the value chain mm. or you cut the cost, right? And so you look at every business that's ever existed. They've, um, they've relocated manufacturing to lower cost centers if they're a manufacturing business. So they've lowered the cost, they've remained competitive. With Lyft and with Uber, they operate in localities where everybody that owns a car is effectively a competitor, potentially. But you can argue what they're doing is they're prospecting for the moat. They're trying to find the niche that once I get that, throw up the drawbridge, this is mine. So when, when we have autonomous cars, is Lyft going to manufacture the autonomous car? It isn't. The car will be manufactured by a car maker who might then say, you know what, why don't we just run our own fleet of autonomous delivery vehicles? Mm. Why do we need or Lyft to do it? With Lyft or and we Uber put the software straight into the dashboard in the car, and you connect up the car Apple. from the manufacturer level. Let's but go ourselves back to Apple. Well, no, what because, Apple, because Apple, Apple had manufactures a, a product. product that they started off with that they made billions out know, of. That's the point. Up. They had something they were really good at. They were unique. Everyone else wanted it. Karen's word, ecosystem was intact, still is to a certain degree, but there are holes into it. Uh, and they were brilliant at one thing, which no, they no. made bundles of but money you, at. But you open it up, open up the apple, what's inside the guts? It's but, not apple guts. And look apple at the software. Had a business model that people wanted to give them 68% margin on. It was unique. It is unique to a certain extent. I want to tell you the Amazon story. So we all know about the erosion of margins to build market share. But now in the past sort of two weeks or so, the effects of they said they would not advertise, not take on board product that was not profitable, that they couldn't turn a profit on. And which is quite extraordinary. You think about all that product that they pushed out there to the marketplace and where they cut prices just to get market share. Now they're saying unless we can make a profit out of selling that product for someone else, it's not going to appear on our website. But There's Amazon your moat. They're digging the that moat while they had the business Amazon operating. is a news agent. Right? Or a book or a bookshop. There's other bits of Amazon. Oh, yeah, yeah. We all know well, about like AWS the services. Exactly. And so on and so do you want to carry on talking about this or do you want to do FX? Your call. It's up to you. We've got a minute and a half. Let's continue on this. This is an okay, exciting. Right. <laughs> Let's do this. But AWS. Let's do it. But AWS is, a, AWS is a critical thing. It, we went from being, okay, we're going to sell you books on the internet, blah, 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 yeah. tiny yeah. margins. I'm not aiming at profit. But then I've got all your information. I've proven myself as being able to uh, control and pass information. Who wants this service? Oh, U.S. Department of Defense. Mm, very nice. AWS is innovative. It is new. It is something we haven't really had before. 
But this is we're talking about Amazon, a taxi company. But, but Amazon found that <laughs> moat. They didn't have the idea of that fortress and moat in the beginning. Jeff? I think so. I think we've, we're obviously missing something. Users would say otherwise. I've used Lyft many times in the US, and it is a different service than Uber. And every the, time you've used it, they've lost money. And it's very cheap for me. And every time you've used it, they've lost money. This is my point. I loved my Fitbit when I had it, but the business model was imicable left, right, and center. But we're going to continue. I'm going to continue right, using oh, it. Okay. I have brand right, loyalty. For our long-term investors, there you go. Here's the question, boy. When is Lyft going to make money? So the, the earliest predictions are about five years, is from what I've read whoa, from some of the whoa, coverage. I've got to sit with this one for five years, and the can... rate of technological change is extraordinary. And I've got to sit there for five years <laughs> with this one in the back of a car and slow moving traffic in London. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.